Oh, hello there. Welcome to another episode of Connect This. Very excited. This is an episode that I've been dreaming about for many years because this is kind of why we started this show, to talk about in-depth topics in ways that would both be fun and detailed, uh, things you can't find anywhere else. And so we have put together a really fun panel. We're going to be talking about cable networks, uh, the how they work technically, uh, in some ways how we got here, uh, what the future of cable networks is. And I, and I did I set this up a little bit thinking about how I think too many people assume that the cable network is doomed in the near future, that there's not enough capacity left in it, or um, it's all going to be fiber to the home very soon. And I think we're going to find out today there's a lot of life left in it, and we'll learn more about why that is. Um, I'm Christopher Mitchell at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Uh, I am the host of Connect This. And we are today talking with, uh, as usual, three other guests. We've got Ron Rannick, who is a mostly retired cable engineer with 49 years of cable experience. Welcome to the show, Ron. Well, thank you, Christopher. And you gave me the tip that um, we don't pronounce the H like we pronounce the H in wheat thins for fun, friend, uh, friend, <laughs> fans of the Family Guy um, commercial. Um, but in this case, we don't pronounce the H. Silent H like the P in swimming. <laughs> <laughs> now we see all those old cartoons with the psychologists and the, the pus swimmers <laughs> we've also got glenn akins who is a longtime friend a municipal broadband advocate and former cable guy uh, hailing from fort collins welcome thank you and our uh longtime uh co-host travis carter travis welcome back well done chris it's, it's been a long time well did you enjoy lunch today Lunch was wonderful. Yes. Another yep, episode twenty-five, and Chris has yet to buy chicken wings or lunch. So he's, I haven't lost a bet yet. I still got. Yeah, I got till February. That's coming up in February. So. In January, I'm gonna have you fatten me up so I can go on a long fast. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Chris will disappear all next year. So, Ron, I have a I have a bet with Travis that I thought was gonna absolutely pay off, um, and that the FCC would redefine the cable, the broadband definition by a certain date in February. It seemed like it was a can't miss, and then Biden didn't bother appointing anyone to the FCC, and now I'm almost certain to lose it. So, <laughs> that's the joke there. Um, we are going. We have a we have a telecom peekaboo to just start and to just get us started and talking about the cable networks. Um, and um, sorry, um, before we put that up, though, I did want to note that uh, we released a report just hours ago. That's really cool. Uh, we're going to talk about it more next week. It's about transparency among Internet service providers and how different types of Internet service providers are more or less candid and clear about what upload speeds, download speeds and prices uh, one would get if you sign up for their services. Um, our colleague at, at the Community Broadband Networks Initiative um, at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, Emma, she put together a really cool report, and we just released that. So if folks want to check that out, it's out there. Uh, Henry, do we have a telecom? We have the image, the original image that we showed months ago. Uh, this is a, a photo from near Rye's place. Rye, our producer. Um, thank you, Henry, our, tele our technical director, for putting this up. Um, and we assume this is charter plant. So we were just trying to figure out a little bit about what it was. And then we had a helpful image supplied by uh, Thomas Randstrom, who, who sent along another image that, that if we want to pop that one up, explains what each of these things is, more or less, or his best guess. And I'm guessing that's coming up right after this. 
First, a word from our sponsors. <laughs> Me. <laughs> uh, Henry, did you have the other one, or is it maybe in a format that doesn't show up? I wonder if it's in a different format that's not displaying well. Oh, cool. So anyway, this is... Um, I thought it was kind of interesting. It's so like telephone ass. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm curious, like Glenn or Ron or Travis, what is a directional coupler? I don't even know what those what those mean. It, it, you've, you've probably seen the uh, the splitter on the side of your house to to connect multiple TVs or multiple set top boxes or other devices in your home. A directional coupler uh, functions somewhat like that. It's instead of having uh, equal RF power going, and I, by, by RF power, RF signal level, going to each output port on that splitter, the directional coupler typically has an unbalanced output. So the, there will be um, greater insertion loss on a, what's called a tap leg. And the idea is to be able to tap off some of the signal from, the, from a main line. So a directional coupler um, does just that. So think of it as an unequal power splitter, RF power splitter. Okay, because you don't want to you don't want to lose half of the power on the main line. I'm guessing that's right. That's right. But on the Excellent. on the main line, you may lose ten to fifteen percent, and and on the coupled line or the tapped line, it it may be a you know ninety percent drop. Okay. Excellent. So I thought it was interesting to just get a sense of of what those different things are. Um, if anyone really wants to to get this, I'm happy to share it with them. But um, whoa, that's whoa, 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 whoa. hold on. We're yeah. not done though. That was just the directional. We got like. <laughs> 26 more items. Well, there's a, there's a directional coupler. There's a line splitter. I mean, if, if I can't figure out what a line splitter is, then yeah. something's gone wrong. All right. So, uh, what, Chris, what is a port terminator? Uh, I'm going to guess that that ends the port. <laughs> <laughs> well done. <laughs> what is a port terminator? All right, Does I'll, anyone know? I do. Yep. The the, the uh, coaxial cable used in a, in a cable distribution network has a nominal impedance of 75 ohms. And when... When that cable reaches an end of line location, it's important that the the uh, transmission line, the coaxial cable, be terminated in the characteristic impedance of the network. So the port terminator is is a 75 ohm impedance terminator. In this case, it has a capacitor in series with a center conductor to block the 60 to 90 volt um, line current, which is used to power amplifiers. Um, and then there's a, a 75 ohm resistor immediately following the capacitor. Uh, and then the uh, the back end of that resistor is tied to uh, to ground. If uh, the capacitor weren't there, the uh, the presence of the seventy or sixty to ninety volts would would cook that resistor very very quickly. But that port terminator terminates the feeder line in the characteristic impedance of the cable network. If that port terminator is not used, um, the RF going through the network will reflect from the open circuit and go back upstream. Mm -hmm and interact with uh, the forward waves and produce uh, impairments to the cable network's performance. So in this model- That was like 95% of my guess, I just want to say. Yeah, yeah. It, <laughs> is the signal going from right to, where, where is it coming in from in this particular example? Can you tell? Um, I'm going to say that the, uh, it's hard to tell for certain, but yeah. I'm thinking it's coming from right to left. Yep. And that it's going into a directional coupler, the tap leg through that. And that looks like kind of a kludge of, of uh, adapters to connect the uh, the two-port tap or two-port directional tap. Uh, so that's connected to the the, the, uh, the coupled leg of a directional coupler. The, uh, the next 
Uh, the next device looks like it could be a line splitter, but it also might be a power inserter. It says um, this SSP, those are old Gerald and Motorola part numbers, general instrument part numbers. Uh, I think the, the one on the left could be a line splitter. And the, uh, the one that's marked line splitter might be a power inserter, but I could be wrong. And a power inserter is a, is a passive component used to couple the, the 60 to 90 volts AC into the coax so that the, uh, the AC uh, travels along with the RF signals and uh, the AC powers the amplifiers. Interesting. And then that directional tap or direct, uh, up at the top is, has two F connectors on it, and that's used to connect to a subscriber drop cable. Uh, in other words, it goes to a, a you know, residential customer's location. Now, I think this is, it's a really useful place to start. A, most of the rest of the discussion will not be at this level of technical detail. But A, I think it's interesting to remember that some people have to know how this stuff works <laughs> um, in order to, to keep everything working. Uh, and then the other thing is, is that um, um, Ron and Glenn really know what they're talking about. Um, Glenn hasn't really spoken up a whole lot here yet, but you'll get a sense of that. <laughs> so let's let's jump into it. And I feel like... Um, let me let me just throw out there a story that I had heard, which was that back in the 90s, there was this idea of taking the one-way uh, cable television distribution system and making it two-way to deliver internet access back and forth. And a lot of people were really struggling with it. And a couple of engineers kind of basically waded in and, and figured it out. Is that more or less the story? Like, how did it actually come to be that we got moving in this direction? So I, I worked at Scientific Atlanta um, right out of college around 1994 to uh, about 2005 when they got acquired by Cisco. And um, originally we just had set-top boxes. And the only information we needed to get back up to the head end was um, what pay-per-view events did someone buy. And then someone at Time Warner Cable at the time and Scientific Atlanta got together and decided, you know, we have all this new digital technology. It'd be really cool to showcase the future of television and we came up with this project called Time Warner Full Service Network or Time Warner FSN. And what we did is we, we grafted a uh, analog set-top box onto a uh, Silicon Graphics Indie workstation. And we put a bunch of RF components that uh, did uh, QAM for forward video. And then we also added some stuff so that we had some two-way interactivity, which involved some QPSK transmitters and receivers. And using those, we had our first real two-way interactive set-top box. And that launched in Orlando, I guess, around 95, 96, sometime, sometime frame. I think they only ever got up to maybe 4,000 customers, maybe it's 400, I don't really remember. But that was kind of the first time we'd ever had like this two-way uh, communication at a real bit rate over the plant. And it wasn't until a few years later that someone came up and said, you know, we need to give our, our cable customers a way to compete against um, ISDN and, and dial-up service. And I think that's kind of what brought around the uh, initial proprietary modems when I was at Scientific Atlanta. Well, being the old guy here, I'll add a little bit more to that. The mm -hmm. concept of a two-way cable network actually is much older than the 90s. It goes back to the 1960s. There wasn't much being done with, with it back then. It was all analog. Um, and the cable industry was playing around with two-way transmission uh, in the 70s. I wrote a paper about a two-way cable and, and some of its benefits in late 72 or early 73 and presented it at a science and humanities symposium in Utah. Um, either the, I can't remember what it was either late 72 or early 73. And but the cable industry never really jumped on the, the two way bandwagon because there were a lot of challenges. The 
the frequency range used for the return path is uh, pretty noisy because it overlaps the, the shortwave broadcast band and, and is in a part of the spectrum that's susceptible to interference from, from uh, electrical noise from power lines and other things that can get coupled into the network. So the cable industry battled with that over the years. Um, some cable companies... Ron, can I ask quick, um, yeah. is that is that because basically like all of the good spectrum is reserved for the downstream to, to distribute? Like you just wanted all of that stuff being reserved or are there other reasons that the upstream? No, not really. The, uh, that'll, well, let me back up a little bit. The, the cable industry has for decades used mostly what's called a subsplit band plan. And what that means is that the bulk of the available RF spectrum uh, is dedicated to downstream transmission. And that's been the case for, for a long, long, long time. And the, the return path is a really narrow chunk of the available spectrum. Early cable systems used the frequency range of 5 megahertz to 30 megahertz for upstream transmission. That expanded over time to 40 megahertz and then 42 megahertz. Uh, but that's all called subsplit. And then the downstream started at uh, just over 50 megahertz, just below TV channel 2. And over the years, that subsplit band plan has been used for a long time. The challenge is that that frequency range of 5 to 30 megahertz or thereabouts um, is susceptible to interference and other things, particularly stuff coming out of the consumer's home. So once the cable's connected inside to the customer premises, it's hard to control what the customer does inside the house. And, and interference from, well, what we would call part 15 devices today and you know, somebody running an electric drill in the garage, all those things can couple couple into the return path and, and cause interference to upstream transmission. And cable companies in late 60s and into the 70s played around with analog NTSC transmission in the return path to get city council meetings and things like that back to the head end. And then it could be turned around and transmitted out to all the customers. So that, that was it was pretty crude by today's standards. Um, as Glenn noted, it was um, worked by companies such as, as uh, Time Warner Cable and the full service network that really move things along. Although, interestingly, the full service network, if I recall correctly, moved the return path up above 900 megahertz. They okay. uh, they, they didn't use the, the subsplit uh, return because of the, the known interference problems. Uh, Warner Cable, I think before before the, uh, time, the, the full service network took off, had a two-way system called Cube, and that was in Columbus and, and a number of other markets. And they learned a lot about two-way operation and security and and things like that. So the concept of two-way has been around a long time. It's just the, uh, the cable industry in the, the 90s started deploying proprietary cable modem technology and with the introduction of DOCSIS in the latter part of the 90s, and we saw a standardized way to do that. But, but uh, two-way has been around a lot longer than a lot of people think. It's just the cable industry really hasn't capitalized upon it, uh, well, didn't capitalize upon it really until later, 80s and 90s, you know, to any great extent. Yeah, so Christopher, you're up in Minnesota. Um, I went to Hopkins High School, Hopkins Middle School when I was up there, and they had a television studio there, and uh, they got the signal from the television studio back up to the cable plant to put on the public access channels using the uh, the, the lower band uh, return path on the cable system. So there definitely was uh, a use for that uh, before the 90s and before digital. Nice. And, you know, coming back to my level of understanding, um, Travis and I had lunch in Hopkins a few years ago. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm curious, Ron and Glenn, if you know also, like, I feel like one of the, the stories I've heard about um, Milo Medin, um, who uh, I hold in, in high esteem, I think he's done a lot of really, really interesting things, um, kind of a, a person who's been talented in a lot of ways, that he was instrumental in some parts of Doxis. Is that, um, is that the case? What was his role, if any? 
Glenn, I don't, I don't know what his role was. A lot of people were involved in the development of Doxus. Mm -hmm. uh, Glenn, do what, you was, know? what was the name again? Milo Medin. He was with, um, uh, I think excited home, um, before. Okay. And, um, and I mean, he went on to work with uh, Google. He's been at Google for a long time. He's working on okay. all kinds of interesting solutions around the world to lots of problems, but, um, okay. So, so that's not a name that rings a bell for you. I've heard the, the name, but I'm not familiar with his, his role in, mm -hmm. in Doxis. I know a number of other people who were heavily involved in Doxis. Mm -hmm. So what are the main challenges going? Cause I, I do feel like we want to spend a majority of this show talking about what's happening going forward. But, but as we go from the original Doxis to maybe like Doxis three, what are the main hurdles of, of these significant leaps of, of bandwidth that can travel um, around the, the cable loops? Well, we're beyond Doxus 3 now. Doxus 3.1 right. came out in, in 2013. Um, Doxus 4.0 was introduced a year, maybe close to two years ago. And the uh, the Cable Labs website already has the fourth version of the spec for Doxus 4.0 on its site. Um, 3.1 has been around, as I said, since 2013. Cable operators started deploying Doxus 3.1 technology uh, within the last... Um, several years and most of the major cable companies and and a lot of the smaller companies um, have been offering gigabit class data service for a few years i know here in the denver mm -hmm. it was rolled out several years ago well let me let me redirect though because i don't want to be bullied by by my technical director who put doxis 4.0 on the screen or by you ron um the reason i asked the question is i feel like prior to 2013 and for some cable companies a while after that the cable companies seemed like they were behind the curve. They couldn't deliver the bandwidth. They didn't have enough bandwidth to deliver their pro on their promises. And so kids come home from school and the network just like hits congestion and there's all kinds of problems. After Doxis 3.1 is deployed, it seemed to me like cable companies more or less at that point were ahead of the game and they could deliver to homes what they were promising. So I'm curious kind of what was happening in that time period before 3.1 is widely adopted and as we get to that point. So Doxus, I think Doxus 3.0 is probably the first revision of Doxus that really put the cable companies on a competitive uh, foothold with uh, a compared against fiber. Um, you know, it had introduced uh, upstream and downstream channel bonding. So before being limited to like one or two, you know, 38 megabit per second channels with uh, Doxus 3.0 on the downstream, you can now bond 32 of these 38 megabit per second channels together and get close to 1.3 gigabit that you could share amongst your plant. Uh, same on the upstream, instead of being limited to a single uh, uh, upstream channel, you can now bond somewhere between four and eight of these upstream channels. So that really gave the cable companies um, the bandwidth they needed to compete. And I think it also propelled the phone or the, the cable companies way ahead of the phone companies with their DSL technology. At that point, DSL couldn't compete anymore. And this is all way before 2013. Yeah, Glenn is spot on with that. The DOCSIS 3.0 really, really changed the game. Um, cable operators were doing some other things behind the scenes in addition to rolling out new versions of Doxis, and one of them was something called node splits. The uh, the way the cable network architectures are based today, it's it's an architecture that's generically known as hybrid fiber coax or HFC, and the uh, the cable operators use a combination of of uh, single mode optical fiber and coaxial cable to distribute signals, and uh, optical fiber transports um, signals from the head end or hub site to a a node, a shoebox sized device out in the field that converts the light to RF. Uh, the service area served by that node in the early days was, it could be as high as several thousand subscribers or homes passed per, per fiber node. And that's a lot. And unfortunately, pre-DOCSIS 3.0, there was certainly issues with, with uh, congestion 
because the earlier versions of Doxus simply didn't provide the data throughput that Doxus 3.0 did. But when 3.0 came along, it really opened up the floodgates, if you will, for, for data. Um, 3.1 introduced some new physical layer technologies, at least new for the cable industry. They're not new technology in general, but OFDM or orthogonal frequency division multiplexing, which is more spectrally efficient. And um, that, that improved things even more. Excellent. And that's where, I mean, I feel like I was... Uh, lucky enough that I think the Twin Cities is one of the first markets that that got some of these upgrades. Comcast just happened to prioritize these for for some reason, and so I felt like I was um, at the uh, uh, the forefront of history <laughs> at that time. <laughs> Um, so Glenn, um, I'm curious, I mean, what was, what was your sense? Cause you, you left around this time, right? You were involved in some of the 3.1 and then you, um, you know, you left the industry to just dabble on your own. And, um, and I should say for anyone who, who's really interested, if you want to do like really see some cool maker stuff, um, like tech, check out Glenn's Twitter feed. So, um, but Glenn, what were you doing before you left the industry? So, um, right before I, I switched into Cisco's enterprise switching and wireless groups, um, I was working in their, their cable group on an IC for our cable modem termination system. And the CMTS is something that sits at the head end, and it's what all the cable modems in an entire city talk to. So it's a very large, heavy, expensive uh, piece of equipment that takes tons of power and requires tons of cooling, uh, which I think Ron will eventually get to why that's no longer the preferred model for that. But we were working on an IC that would go inside the CMTS that would open up the upstream and implement the DOCSIS 3.1 um, upstream, or the, would implement the upstream side of the DOCSIS 3.1 spec. You know, so when everyone starts talking about DOCSIS 3.1, they get excited to have gigabit, but that's because, but I don't have gigabit uploads, which was a limitation, but it wasn't a limitation of DOCSIS 3.1 or the specifications, it was a limitation of what the cable companies chose to deploy. Um, at the time, I was working on a chip that went into the CMTS that enabled gigabit uploads um, on the upstream side as well. And, you know, we, we spent quite a bit of time, effort, and money uh, developing that chip, uh, building line cards for the CMTS. And then I don't recall anyone ever uh, actually purchasing one of those cards or deploying uh, DOCSIS 3.1 in the upstream. So when people start talking about having DOCSIS 3.1 modems, having DOCSIS 3.1 deployed, what they're really talking about is they have DOCSIS 3.1 deployed in the downstream, which enables gigabit uploads, but then they never deployed it in the upstream, so you don't get the, the gigabit uploads, sorry, the gigabit downloads, but they never deployed it in the upstream, so you never get the gigabit uploads that go with it. And there's another piece that goes with that too. And um, Glenn is Glenn is right about that. The spec is, when DOCSIS 3.1 was introduced as a specification, um, among the goals was the ability to scale to um, five plus gigabits per second in the downstream or more. And now there, there's some that are saying that it's, we're looking at 10 plus gigabits per second with DOCSIS 4.0 um, and a gigabit plus um, per second in the upstream. The part of the big limitation to not being able to support a gigabit per second in the upstream is that subsplit band plan. The, uh, the, the, there's only so much RF spectrum available there and a conventional five to 42 megahertz subsplit return, that's 37 megahertz of RF bandwidth. And if you fill that up with, with let's say DOCSIS 3.1 signals and you get a spectral efficiency of eight bits per second per hertz, that's going to give you somewhere just south of 300 megabits per second upload. So in order to get faster speeds, the cable network has to be upgraded to a wider return path to either mid-split or a high-split um, return. And particularly a high-split return, uh, going from five megahertz to 204 megahertz will give the capability with eight bits per second per hertz spectral efficiency somewhere in the uh, one and a half gigabit per second range, which is pretty impressive. 
So I want to talk more about what it really takes to change these splits in the in the real world. But also, Travis, I want to give you a chance to um, ask any of the questions that you've been developing or curious no, 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 about. I I'm just watching. I'm listening. I'm learning. So <laughs> this is this is fascinating. Um, so the, the question I've always had is is where in between all this, where's all the television content at? You know, if you look at a frequency chart, where is is that in the middle somewhere? In this in this in this scenario, I think I, it's been a long time since I put a spectrum analyzer on a plant or looked at the diagnostics on the cable modem, but it seemed to me that like uh, at least on the local Comcast plant, the television content was between about 50 megahertz and maybe 550 650 megahertz, and then they were putting the downstream data uh, between 650 and 750. Okay, yeah, that's about right. Now, to get more capacity, do you have to? Do you have to reduce the number of channels you have available to, to and reallocate that spectrum into the data side of it? Or is can you do higher qualm rates? I mean, what's the different, you know, OFDMA-A, I guess now is one of the things that they're moving towards to get even more more um, efficiencies. What What's the plan? Well, one well, of the... Go ahead, Glenn. I was just going to say one of the one of the easy options to get more download bandwidth without having to remove television channels is to go through the plant and replace the amplifiers and replace the taps. You know, if you're on a plant that was built 20 years ago, you might only have um, uh, passives in the plant that are capable of 550 megahertz of bandwidth. Okay. So you can go through and just send a technician from yard to yard with a screwdriver and a key and replace all the taps and the little green pedestals and up your bandwidth of your plant to 750 or a gigahertz more. Hmm. Okay. And there's there's a lot of things that the the industry has been doing over the years. Um, in the 1990s, the the equipment manufacturers started to introduce um, gigahertz capable components. So the coaxial cable was qualified for a gigahertz. Um, the passives and and actives were qualified for a gigahertz, even though the the amplifiers may not at the, didn't at the time support that. But something else that cable operators were doing was was uh, called analog reclamation. And let's say that uh, the cable operators is has a an operating uh, bandwidth in the downstream to 750 megahertz. And and the lower part of the spectrum from say uh, just above 50 megahertz that Glenn noted up to uh, pick a number 500, 550 megahertz is uh, is analog NTSC TV channels. Well, the one, one, one video service per six megahertz chunk of spectrum is a horrible use of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. So the, the cable operators embarked on a a program that many have called analog reclamation. And what they did was um, basically digitize the uh, the television signals and started transmitting the digital the digital video signals. Now in the beginning they had to do they had to duplicate things until they got the got the set top box swapped out and and whatnot so that everybody could receive the digital signals. But once that was done, all those six megahertz channel slots um, were full of sing what are called single carrier qualm signals. So 64 QAM, 256 QAM signals, um, transporting the digital video uh, to the to the subscribers. And as, as Glenn noted, that's typically in the you know up to 550, 600 megahertz or thereabouts. And the DOCSIS stuff is usually above that. Uh, it doesn't it doesn't have to be that way, but that's just historically the way the cable industry's done it. The digital signals for DOCSIS are also single carrier QAM. So on a spectrum analyzer, they look identical. Uh, you can't tell them apart, but um, that's been the, the general trend. With DOCSIS 3.1, they started to, to get a little bit more aggressive and, and expand the bandwidth of the network. So maybe instead of 750, they upgraded to 870 or a gigahertz for the plant um, and, and then made room for uh, OFDM. 
Um, in DOCSIS 3.1, the downstream is OFDM, the upstream is OFDMA. So they okay. started making room for OFDM um, to, to transport the DOCSIS uh, technology and at a much higher data rate. Now, there's a, there's a really cool thing in the spec that says that that a DOCSIS 3.1 cable modem has to be compatible with, with DOCSIS 3.0. Backwards compatibility has always been part of that. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a, there's this neat little trick that cable operators can do that's supported in the spec, and that is that, that for the 3.1 subscribers, the data services that are carried on the DOCSIS 3.0 channels the conventional single carrier qualm signals that are still there can be bonded with the OFDM channel to, to give an even higher data rate to the DOCSIS 3.1 subscribers. Now the 3.0 subscribers don't get a don't get any benefit from the OFDM because they've still they're still using a 3.0 modem. But um, by bonding the 3.0 uh, data channels with the 3.1 OFDM signal, the downstream data rate can be just insane. So is is the question then? And maybe this is something I've never been able to figure out. We'll come back to this question that's lit up. I want to um, okay, we'll talk quick. about that. But go ahead, Travis. You know the node, which is the component of the number of subscribers per person. How big are these nodes generally in American cable networks? Any any sense? Are they a thousand? No, no, no. Shoulder width. The number of the number of subscribers downstream, I guess, would be the the more accurate question. Oh, these days. Um... Average is probably about 500 homes passed per fiber node. Okay. It used to be a lot more, but the operators have been doing node splits over the last several years to reduce the number of homes passed per fiber node. So average is probably about 500, um, where some cable operators are doing uh, what's called node plus zero, where there are no amplifiers after the node. We're looking at 85 to maybe 100 homes passed per node. So in the DOCSIS 3.1 spec, you have 500 homes sharing... What was the maximum downstream capacity? Well, let's say it's a. Well, it depend. I'm going to answer that with one of my favorite answers, and that's it. Depends. It depends. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if, if you're if you're talking about a, a DOCSIS 3.0 offering, that's that could be using 32 bonded channels, and that's a, that can provide in excess of a gigabit per second. Um, yeah. If the cable operator deploys DOCSIS 3.1 with an OFDM signal, depending on the width of the OFDM signal and the modulation order, that can support a gigabit per second. Um, typically they do some cross bonding there and yes, it, it's shared, but keep in mind when I said homes passed, that's not necessarily the homes connected. The mm -hmm. homes, the homes passed, let's say there are 500 homes passed per node, maybe 50% of them are actually connected to the yeah, cable yeah. network and taking the service. So at that point you're, you're sharing the, uh, um, the down, the, the downstream data capacity among say 200, 250 homes. And and did three one expand that then to an additional downstream capacity? Yeah. Okay. But I've, if you had a three, if you had a three all modem in the on the subscriber side, did that affect the three one downstream or not? No. Okay. No. Okay. I have a I have a three all modem in my house. My <clears throat> data service is a two is well they advertise it at one hundred and seventy five megabits per second. I yeah. test it between my cable modem and the cable company's uh, servers in their, their local hub site. And it's consistently in the 200 to 205 megabit per second range. It's, it's, it hardly ever varies from that. So that, but that's 3.0. I've also got DOCSIS 3.1 test equipment here in my, my man cave, if you will. Yep. And I do occasionally test the, the, uh, the Comcast um, gigabit class service here on the, on the OFDM signal and it plays as advertised. And then and what are you seeing? On, what are you seeing on the upload then? 
Uh, for my service, the 3.0 service, it's about five megabits per second. The, the, uh, the gigabit uh, downstream service is about, I want to say 40 or 45 megabits per second in the upstream. Okay. Um, so we have uh, some some good questions in the chat, and uh, yes, Jeff, I definitely want to want to tackle some of the DIY questions. Uh, first, I want to um, uh, come at uh, something that Glenn had said and clarify: um, is is it the case that basically what is holding uh, the, the cable companies back from being able to like rush into Doxis Four and have very high capacity upload speeds that they don't want to send a person from backyard to backyard with a key uh, to just replace that one element? Or are there other things as well that are a challenge uh, between um, us and the glorious symmetrical broadband future of cable? So, so the big the big thing there is that you need to um, move that band split that Ron's been talking about. So instead of having the band split at 50 megahertz to uh, implement DOCSIS 3.1, um, you need to move that band split up to 100 megahertz or 200 megahertz to get DOCSIS 3.1 going in the upstream with some real bandwidth behind it. Around the same time that the DOCSIS 3.1 um, spec was uh, was released and all the, the talk of uh, the fast upstreams became available, uh, some uh, coworkers of ours at Cisco came up with something called DOCSIS full duplex uh, that was originally incorporated into uh, DOCSIS 3.1 or was talked about being incorporated in there. Ron can elaborate on that. But a lot of the cable companies saw this way. You know what, instead of uh, making these big changes to uh, move the band split to 200 megahertz, let's go to an N plus zero architecture, get rid of the band split altogether and deploy uh, full duplex when the time comes. Then we don't have to worry about where our, where our band split is. Um, the other issue with the band split is that if you move it from uh, 50 megahertz to 200 megahertz, you have all these set top boxes out in the field. You need to move where they're expecting their channels to be too. And maybe you have to remove some uh, some traditional single carrier QAM broadcast channels and move those to IP te television channels where they're only sent when a, when a subscriber uh, demands them. Okay, so, so multiple things there. One is a whole bunch of set-top boxes, which, I mean, it might be, you know, Comcast has millions of those in the field, kind of an issue, right? Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, even if you're a smaller company, it's still a significant investment. Um, you have um, these other channels that may need to get moved around, and then you have um, this... Um, but the, I guess, let me, as I'm trying to understand this, um, so basically, is it the case that the entire industry is going with that Cisco approach of the full duplex and, and the original approach of the 3.1 um, higher upload capacity has been ditched? Um, no. Okay. It, and maybe it depends is, is better here. Um, <laughs> as Glenn noted, the, the, uh, the concept of full duplex was, was introduced as a kind of an addition or an appendix to DOCSIS 3.1. It has since been incorporated in DOCSIS 4.0. Um, the, the, depending on the cable operator, some operators are looking at, at deploying full duplex DOCSIS. And for those who are curious about what the heck that means and how you can get away without a band split, um, full duplex DOCSIS enables the simultaneous transmission of downstream and upstream signals on the same frequency. And they don't interfere with each other. And of course you think, well, wait a minute, how can you do that? But the telephone industry has been doing that for decades using echo cancellation. So, uh, so the, the, the key or the, the, the secret sauce in, in full duplex um, was the creation of echo cancellation technology that could allow the, uh, the downstream and upstream signals to occupy the same frequencies at the same time. So that's one way to do it. The other way to do it, and again, it depends on the operator. Some are looking at deploying full duplex DOCSIS techniques. Others are looking at taking advantage of the, of the new band splits that are, that are specified in DOCSIS 4.0. Uh, one approach is that helps to get around 
at least in the short to medium term, the set-top box issue is going to a mid-split, which is 5 megahertz to 85 megahertz. A big issue with, with a lot of set-tops is that they need what's called out-of-band signaling. And that's the communication between the cable company and the set-top box. And the signals um, that are, they're narrow-band signals, so uh, you know, an FSK or, or QPSK or something else, it's transmitted to the set-top box and from the set-top box. Return path, not a big deal. That can be transmitted upstream at pretty much any frequency in the return path. But in the downstream, the uh, out-of-band signaling has is on a, is, has been in, in the frequency range that the cable industry would love to, to use for the return path or, or the, the return path. But how can you do that if that's going to be the downstream? So one way around that is deploy mid-split for the time being and move the out-of-band signaling up a little higher in frequency to say 104 megahertz or somewhere. Set-top boxes retune to the, the new frequency they receive it and they're able to work just fine. And then as those set-tops um, are replaced uh, over time, then the cable operator can deploy a high-split band plan go to save 204 megahertz return path or higher. Um, there are several high splits that go clear up over to 600 megahertz at the same time expanding the downstream. So going from um, 750 to 870 or a gigahertz going up to, to 1.2 gigahertz or, or 1.8 gigahertz. Um, that's that's in the cards. So the cable op cable industry is, is uh, being very aggressive about planning for ex expanding the downstream spectrum to significantly increase what they can provide to customers, as well as expanding the upstream RF spectrum. And um, I think at some point in the future over HFC networks, and this is what blows a lot of people away, is I said, well, you got to put fiber to the home in, and cable companies are doing it. Um, it's a small it's a small percentage of their of their network, but uh, they're doing it. But the, the HFC network's got a lot of life left in it. And the, the ability to get, say, five gigabits per second in the in the upstream and 10 plus gigabits per second in the downstream is not that far off. Do you have a sense of the cost differential between uh, going to um, uh, do all this work to go to a mid split and then a high split and in all this versus just being like, you know what, we're just going to do fiber to the home. Um, is there a lot of cost savings to, to do the multi-split path? Well, the, the, the big problem that the industry has faced, and I know that for the last, I don't know, 25 plus years, the industry said, well, fiber to the home is just around the corner. Another five years and it's 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 a real thing. The, the problem is, has been that the cost to, to convert an existing HFC network to fiber to the home is still incredibly expensive. And it and it's uh, in a greenfield application, a new build, yeah, cable operators are rolling out fiber to the home in many places. The big deal is that to keep in mind that you've got an existing HFC network that has to be ripped out and replaced by fiber to the home. Now, eventually that'll be done, but it's- Without it's, losing more than a day of service to the customer, Well, right? yeah, it's it's incredibly <laughs> service disruptive. Okay. It'll happen, but um, <laughs> it's going to be a ways off because it's still expensive to to replace an existing HFC network with, with fiber to the home. And so, I think everybody, everybody would agree, yeah, fiber to the home is the end goal. I, I think a lot of people don't realize how expensive um, boring and hanging fiber, boring- uh, uh, doing directional drilling and, and boring uh, holes in the ground for conduit and hanging fiber on the the, the poles is uh, the fiber and the conduit's free, but you know around here the budgetary pricing I'm hearing uh, for uh, bearing you know using a directional boring equipment and bearing conduit and then pulling fiber through it is twenty dollars per foot. So if you need to go you know a thousand feet, that's twenty thousand dollars worth of boring work. Um, but don't they already fire. have their pole rights and things like that? Like, why would they need new holes underground? 
well, I'm in the community I'm in, everything's underground. <laughs> okay. There are there are no aerial wires. So, you know, but I, I don't think aerial is much cheaper than $20 a foot either. Um, well, that's I, why I'm, I'm curious. I mean, they, they already have position on the poles. Is it because they just can't occupy them, but they're not going to overlash the, the cable? Okay. It's the labor. It's, it's very labor, very labor intensive. And and the other the other point is if they start to overlash on existing uh, cables, they may exceed the... Um, um, the load capacity of the support mm -hmm. strand, they may exceed what they have in the pole agreement with the owner of the pole, which could be the power company or phone company or both. So there could be a lot of what's called make ready engineering that has to be done in order to accomplish that. So it's, it's, um, there's a lot more that goes on behind the scenes than, than it at first seems. And now, it might actually be cheaper and faster and easier to go ahead and go with the directional drilling and bury your plant versus doing the additional engineering work and overlashing and replacing poles. Look at Joel. Joel has the answer to everything. I love <laughs> so, it. So, one of the there's a comment. There's a couple of comments um, uh, from the panel about um, um, the. Uh, sorry, Joel just broke my brain, um, <laughs> which is appreciated. Um, about um, oh, that's just frustrating. Um, this is only the second hold time on, in my life on, this happened. Go you're ahead. While yeah. you're collecting your thoughts, Chris, because I don't know if Ron and Glenn really appreciate the ultimate solution is 14g so <laughs> will not be it but fiber hfc all these things are dead when 14g hits so, just to be clear so, so joel so, yeah i am a i am I'm, I'm not a huge 5g fan but i am concerned about the long-term feasibility of these fiber and hfc networks travis is living in the future my yeah. question is visionary um, chris visionary. I've heard conflicting things about whether or not Comcast Charter Spectrum are building in new areas, which with coaxial cable or with fiber. Glenn, yeah. you seem to have identified places where Comcast is still using HFs. Is not, I don't want to confuse, but they're, <laughs> they're still using coaxial cable, right? Because you can so, build fiber and run Doxis over it. And I want to talk about that secondly. Yeah. So, so first off, um, there's a brand new neighborhood that just went in uh, north of mine here. And about a year, two years ago, I was out scouting around, just seeing what was going on. And uh, they had pulled uh, coax to all the pedestals uh, for this brand new neighborhood that was going in. And simultaneously with, with that, um, I was living in an apartment in Colorado Springs. It was relatively new. And they pulled fiber to all the apartments. But it's not the type of fiber you might expect. Um, it was something called RFOG or RF over glass where they're running the DOCSIS protocols over a passive optical fiber network, uh, which I found uh, really fascinating uh, versus going ahead and, uh, and you know, running XGS PON or GPON. Um, and, and my only, you know, I was out of the cable industry a few years at that point, so I didn't really have anyone to talk to about it. And my only thing was, you know what, it's probably easier to only market one type of service and other provision equipment's probably set up for just one type of service. So rather than have, you know, all the docs of stuff with, you know, gig down and 35 up and then having GPON with gig down and gig up and then trying to figure out how to market these two different products and two different, you know, based on addresses, and zip codes, it's probably just easier for them to just have one product um, and advertise that. Yeah, we have that here in Minnesota out on the west side of town. It's fiber into the NID and then they've got some sort of converter box and then it's coax into the house. And then Doxus from you know it's all Doxus there, so they they are running fiber in the streets. Just you know, it's all um, what what do you guys Doxus over fiber? I guess it's called RFOG, RF over glass. Okay, I don't know how many companies are still still ro rolling out RFOG. Um, RFOG's been around for a while, 
and there have been a few different iterations of it depending on the the manufacturers providing the uh, the end equipment. Uh, but basically, it's think of it as HFC all the way to the house, where the the device on the side of the house converts the light to RF, and then it's coax inside the house. Um, the I think the industry, I know some operators are well, all the all pretty much all the operators are deploying some fiber to the home. The where they do it and how they do it is uh, I. I I can't speak to the way they make a decision about where they would deploy fiber versus uh, HFC, but every cable operator that I'm aware of uh, is deploying at least some um, fiber to the home in new build applications. Well, Charter is building a lot more expansions in California, and then they got a bunch of money from Ardoff. And I'm curious, is there a challenge with if you suddenly build a, um, a new neighborhood um, or, a, you know, a more rural community um, with fiber, and then you're pulling that back to the same, uh, you know, head end. Um, is, is there a challenge in terms of incorporating it all together? Or is that just um, known issues and not a problem? I think the industry understands the, the issues that go with that. And so would you expect then that, that generally you know, as Charter's building up 5 million new households or something like that, they're probably going to be doing fiber for all of them. Is that your expectation, more or less? Well, I don't I don't know what percentage of it would be fiber, but it would. I wouldn't be surprised if most of it's fiber. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so I want to, there's been a bunch of stuff in uh, the chat about DIY stuff with um, with the uh, the modems and things like that. And I know that, um, you know, Comcast still has a big old list of modems that you can get, um, which I appreciate given the high rental fees that some of these cable companies charge for the modems. Um, but I don't know a whole lot about the DIY stuff. And I, I Glenn, you are Mr. DIY in my <laughs> mind. So I'm curious if you've been, have you been tracking the chat at all with some of the, the questions? I've been trying to pay attention to the conversation here. And, no, that's uh, the fail. That's not good. <laughs> <laughs> so what sorts of questions are coming up about the DIY? Uh, there you go. Um, well, it's um, some of the questions were about, well, first of all, people like to run their own, um, their own modems. And, um, oh, let's see. Um, Jeff says that he has uh, Cox and Mesa using a Motorola Surfboard Doxis 3.1. Um, which um, uses it as an open community SNMP monitor um, to check its health. Um, and he feels like Cox is not so friendly to people who are trying to do things like that. Hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, is there, is there an issue with uh, people um, trying to do interesting things on their end? And how does that, how does that impact the cable network? Oh boy. <laughs> you know, I think most of the DIY type of things that I've, I've seen for checking modem health is they periodically, uh, you know, ping uh, an upstream uh, service provider, you know, like google.com or something. And if they lose connectivity for more than two or three minutes, they have like a Wi-Fi smart plug and they reset their cable modem, um, which they shouldn't have to do. You know, the, the cable modem should be reliable and it should have, you know, near, near, you know, 99% uptime. And if something's going on there, uh, that's a problem. Um, you know, one of the things that was introduced in Doxis 3.1 to kind of alleviate some of the uh, issues with modems going down and finding plants with something called proactive network management or PNM. Um, and this is where they built a ton of diagnostics into both the CMTS and the Doxis 3.1 cable modems so that they could find um, where deficiencies in the outside plant were happening uh, before they caused a problem for subscribers. So they had the ability to capture a bunch of uh, basically the, RF, the raw RF signal uh, coming off the ADCs uh, in both the CMTS and in the cable modems. 
and then they can take all this data that they captured, feed it into a software tool to head in and try to pinpoint, you know, where was their ingress noise in the plant? Where was their water leaking into a piece of coax? Uh, those types of issues. And then do a truck roll to fix them before they uh, became uh, significant issues and affected subscribers. PNM's an incredible tool. I'm, I'm, uh, I've been a member of the Cable Labs PNM working group since it started, uh, I don't know, close to a dozen years ago. And I'm also a member of the SCTE uh, PNM working group. Uh, proactive network maintenance, uh, as, as Glenn noted, was was incorporated in the DOCSIS 3.1 spec and section nine of the physical air specification. The whole, whole the whole thing is devoted to proactive network maintenance, and it provides all the hooks for for all the things that Glenn mentioned. And there there's some cool things in there that he didn't mention. One of them is. Uh, Sorry, Mr. President, I'll have to call you back. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a way to switch off that phone right there. Um, and it's usually spam anyway. Um, one of them is something called full band capture. So the most DOCSIS 3.0 modems and all DOCSIS 3.1 modems have this full band capture capability that in fact turns the, the cable modem into a spectrum analyzer. And the, the cable companies are finding that to be an incredibly powerful tool. They can see all kinds of impairments by looking at the RF spectrum data from that. Um, going the other direction, one of the early capabilities of PNM was the ability to look at upstream in-channel frequency response uh, derived from the adaptive pre-equalization coefficients. And, and from that, they could look at in-channel frequency response. And some of the cable technicians got good enough that they could interpret um, some of the signatures on that to say, to, to say, hey, wait a minute, there's a loose connector somewhere in the customer's drop. Now, it could be out of the pole or it could be on the side of the house. But in a number of instances, they could call the customer and say, we're doing some, some root, you know, remote diagnostics and it looks like there could be a loose connector maybe on the back of your modem or someplace outside. Could you do, a, do us a favor? Go check the back of your modem, see if the connector's loose. If it is, just snug it up. And in many cases, they found that, that yeah, it was loose and, and it resolved the problem. Other cases, it required sending a technician out to, to sort it out you know, so because the, the problem is outside. So the, the PNM capability is incredibly powerful when it comes to troubleshooting problems. And the nice thing is a lot of the problems can be identified remotely without having to roll a truck, which is incredibly expensive. Um, it's it reduces the troubleshooting time, and the techs are able to to, to identify about where the problem is, um, fairly close to where it's actually occurring. Particularly if if there's a problem affecting multiple subscribers, they can look for common signatures among um, different cable modems in a in a given neighborhood. And if they all have the same signature in in um, in these uh, PNM characteristics, if you will, they can say, "All right, the problem is here. It's not here." And you look on the map and say, "All right, it's it's between these two poles, and uh, or even closer." And they can narrow it down and and uh, send a truck right to the area where the problem is and fix it. So this is this has come a long way. You know, in the early days, um, they would have a spectrum analyzer at the plant that was tuned to like DC to 50 megahertz. They would aim a video camera at the screen of the spectrum analyzer, yeah. then put that out on like channel 600 or something. And that was their tool for examining uh, the, the return path on the plant. So things have really changed since uh, since those oh, days. Oh yeah, it's, it's well, impressive what they can do now. It seems like there's still a lot of points of failure. So even as we see much more capacity in better tools for maintaining the network, uh, it seems like there's still a lot more places for cable networks to sort of fail and bring down all the homes on the node. Uh, and it's actually been more than 10 years since I had this issue, but I um, had this issue in an apartment that I was living in where like the cable network um, from Comcast would just every now and then it would just go out for a half hour, an hour. It was super annoying. It would happen like, you know, like, like once a week here and then like twice a week, a few weeks later. And, um, and I 
uh, finally I came home one time to see a uh, Comcast uh, up on my apartment building, a little four unit uh, apartment building. And, uh, and I was like, Oh, you're fixing that problem. And the guy looks at me and he's like, you have no idea how bad this has been. We have this intermittent <laughs> problem. We can't believe what it is. And basically whenever we see the problem develop, we like rush out in our trucks to try to like check all these different places to figure out where the failure is so we can fix it. But like, you know, it may have had to do with like temperatures or, or, or a different, um, you know, moisture in the air or something like that. Um, but anyway, the, the point in my mind is like, as we're talking about the future of cable, it seems like we're still going to see a lot more of these kinds of problems in cable than we would from a fiber network. Is that right? Well, that's an, it depends. Um, yeah, I again, thought you might one say of that. my favorite answers. <laughs> some of the, some of the issues are self-induced. Um, some of them are caused by customers. Uh, some of them are caused by people stealing the service. Uh, some are caught there are environmental factors. Uh, some are out of the, out of control of the cable company and, and not just the cable company is susceptible to this, but phone companies, fiber providers, rodent damage. Rodents love to chew on, on cables. And it, it doesn't matter if it's a phone cable or a cable TV cable or a fiber cable, they'll chew on it and cause all kinds of damage. So that, um, you know, and there are you know, power issues, although most cable companies now have battery backup in their network, so that's become less of an issue. Uh, things are a lot better than they used to be, a whole lot better than they used to be. But as with anything that's out there exposed to the elements, things can go wrong and do and do go wrong. So uh, one of the more interesting subscriber-related uh, downtime issues I, I've encountered is that um, back, I guess, around 2014, 2015, when Colorado legalized uh recreational marijuana as well as growing it at home, um, the, my cable node in my neighborhood would fail every day at 3 p.m. precisely. And it turned out that one of my neighbors had a bunch of grow lights that were very leaky and had a lot of uh, excess RF energy that they, that they uh, emitted. And there were loose connectors inside this guy's house and the RF energy from the grow lights would get into the cable plant and take down the uh, upstream every day when they turned on. And, you know, this went on for months before they were able to, to figure out uh, exactly yeah. what was causing it and fixing it. So that was the time I tried to get Cisco to buy a bunch of grow lights. <laughs> <laughs> a, I have a side story that goes along with that, Glenn. Um, a few years back, uh, there was a, a case that affected ham radio communications, uh, the interference from grow lights. It also affected the cable company, but it was a big interference problem in the over-the-air environment. Uh, the the uh, ARRL, American Radio Relay League, managed to find out what kind of ballast was being used with the grow lights that were causing the problem, and they bought some. Well, they, they were imported um, um, fixtures, and unfortunately, the uh, they did not meet the FCC rules for uh, conducted and radiated emissions, and the ARRL's lab did some uh, testing of the, the ballast and found that it exceeded the FCC limit by something like 60 six zero db i could see six hmm. db or 10 db but 60 db it was just an insane amount of interference being generated by these things so they're oh they're horrible cable the technicians do not like grow lights at all they cause a lot of issues <laughs> is that is that i mean do we have leds that have solved that now so we can safely grow these things uh, or is there something else about the grow lights that um was the issue i, I think in this case it was that the the imported um, mm. fixtures did not meet the FCC rules. And and it may be that they even put counterfeit stickers on them that said that they were FCC compliant and, and they were nowhere near mm. the FCC. Uh, right. I, wonder, I wonder if that is the reoccurring issue we have with Chris's inter the cable internet going out periodically. Uh, <laughs> when his grow lights come on? His grow lights <laughs> on. I wonder if that's what the issue is. I got to figure out who's turning my grow lights off. Exactly, yeah. 
Um, there was a question earlier that I wanted to get to, and I, I blame um, Travis for um, forcing me to eat something other than wings for lunch because uh, wings give me the clear mind. The other piece of the question I want to get at from Maine, which we had that, that good question from Maine, um, is um, if, if Charter is, in fact, building a fiber infrastructure in, air, in new areas, um, is there any technical reason why they would be sticking with the, the radically asymmetrical um, approach? Because if you're building a whole new plant, I'm presuming that at that point, it's a, you have a technical freedom to offer whatever speeds you want. And at that point, it might be about your tiers and, 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 and communications and things like that, rather than the technical reason why you're not doing more upload. I suspect that in their new, if they're doing HFC um, in a new build application, they're probably going to to uh, an expanded return path because I know that I've talked to some of the engineers at Charter and and they're real active in in uh, doing testing and rolling out some of the you know the mid split or high split architectures. Now where they're doing it, I don't know, but I know that they're they're they are looking at it. So I'd be surprised if they're not rolling it out in new builds. Right. So that's what I. So I mean, it would be it would be pretty surprising to you. I guess would be a way to ask you if. Anything that's being built today is not technically capable of having a better upstream um, product yep. experience. Yeah, there'd be no reason to not um, build a network with a mid-split or high-split band plan in a, mm -hmm. in a new build for HFC. Okay. Um, so, um, Travis, did you have any questions? Well, I wanted to wait till the end, but I got to ask Ron now. Is that an AM radio over your right-hand shoulder there up on the shelf? Um, the, other side, the other side. That one. Yes. Yeah. That's from, uh, I, I collect um, vintage radios. It, it's a from about 1931. And yes, it works. I've got some more upstairs. I, I like to listen, I listen on a vintage 1941, 41 or 42 Zenith tabletop, listen to AMDX at night. I've been doing, I, I, well, that was one of the things that got me interested in rf engineering well, well which which is actually really interesting you know chris if you've noticed a lot of the terms that are used in these hfc plants are the very same terms that are used in point to multi-point wireless and other, i hadn't noticed that yeah qualm and you know all your signal and everything else and it makes running a fiber network seem pretty simple when you just plug it in turn it on and go to bed you know it's like it's not, <laughs> yeah. there's not a lot of, there's not a lot to it you have good light that's all it is you know yeah. Well, for people who have stuck with us this long and have heard the word qualm um, many, many times, uh, what is it and why is it significant? It, it's an abbreviation uh, for quadrature amplitude modulation, and it's a way to transmit digital data as an analog signal uh, because the, the cable network or mo many other networks that use qualm have to trans they can't transmit digital data in its baseband form and have to convert it to an analog form. And qualm is a way to do that. A qualm signal is a um, double sideband suppressed carrier RF signal. And in the case of North American cable networks, that, that uh, QAM signal is six megahertz wide, the same as the, the channel bandwidth used for analog NTSC. And if you look at it on a spectrum analyzer, it looks like a kind of a rectangular or square shaped haystack of noise, uh, but it's, a, it's, a, an R, it's an analog RF signal. And that's, uh, you need that in those situations with the radio waves, whereas with the light, it's just on or off. Is that right? Well, that's not quite true. You know, you, you start looking at Good. some of these uh, terabit, you know, the, you hear these records where people are carrying multiple terabits per second on a single piece of fiber. Well, they're using qualm modulation too. Mm -hmm. They're also using horizontal and vertical polarization and a bunch of other tricks to, to maximize the amount of uh, data they can get of that, that uh, fiber. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, I for, for just your basic one or 10 gigabit home internet, it's 
basically transmit and receive on two different wavelengths and you're done. You know, it isn't, is it's not the fancy stuff. Um, so uh, in the chat, there is stuff going back and forth. And I just want there's a, a person, Jeff, who's uh, contributed a lot of stuff. And I'm, uh, and it's very difficult to both host and read. And so there's just this disconnect <laughs> where, like, I feel like Jeff is like, I put a lot of stuff in the chat and I'm, I'm interested in it, but I'm unable to both try to track the conversation and figure out how to turn those into uh, questions for the panel. And so that's where if people have specific questions, I'm very happy to, to do it. I'll just say that it works better when I have to do less translation because um, as I've already said, I didn't have enough wings today. And so the brain is a little <laughs> bit starved of, of raw materials. Um, the, uh, one of the, the questions that I have is, um, um, the, Ron, I feel like you're more bullish and then Glenn is possibly less so, but like, um, at a technical level for, uh, moving forward five, six years, do you feel like, um, assuming at that point, we do see an actual implementation of Doxis 4, we have a high upload capacity on maybe many cable networks. Do you feel like homeowners, um, who are not particularly technical, will see a difference between uh, fiber network or, uh, the cable network, uh, at, at that point? Um, probably not. The, the, the fiber is sexy and it's a, it's a great marketing tool to convey the idea of real high throughput. But what a lot of people don't realize, and, and I don't think the cable industry does a good job of promoting the capability of HFC and coax. The coaxial cable's got incredibly, uh, an incredible bandwidth capability. And it's, I'm not going to get into the physics of the, the uh, transverse electric uh, modes and stuff that, that limited the upper limit, but it, it's pretty incredible. And I, there's been some talk, about taking fiber to the tap and making it a say a remote phi node but in the tap and having 25 gigabits per second symmetrical in the coax drop going from the tap to the house um not nobody's doing anything with that yet but that's a that's something that's been discussed in the last couple of years as a possibility but before we even get to something that far out i think what we're going to see is the cable industry will be able to deliver 10 gigabits per second plus in the downstream in the hfc networks over coax of course, there's fiber on the front end of that, but it's still mm -hmm. over coax. And in the return path, you know, a gigabit per second plus, depending. Um, and then in those those situations where a cable operators also provide doing fiber to the home and new builds and things, they'll also be providing multi-gigabit services. Uh, to the end user, uh, if you don't tell them what it is, there is if as long as it's reliable and it's been installed properly and, um, you know, there aren't technical glitches with it, um, to the consumer, they won't know the difference. And, and that's where, I mean, I, the, coming to you, Glenn, I feel like one of the things we've seen in the cable industry historically was this sense of rather than saying um, upload is important, I mean, they would say upload isn't important. People don't care about it as much. And it mm -hmm. seems like they're addressing that now. And at that point, it will be curious to see whether people can tell the difference between a fiber and a cable service when it's not obvious from the fact that the connection tops out at 40 megabits a second for most of us on a cable network. <laughs> yeah, I... I I think I think you know the I guess the long answer there is that due to the cost involved in bearing new fiber lashing new fiber to poles um, for the vast majority of, of customers that have cable today they're gonna have cable tomorrow um, yeah. and that means how much technology can we throw at the outside plant to make sure that the outside plant continues to have a long life and continues to function and uh, provides equal capabilities to fiber 
and I think something that goes along with what Glenn just said is that the cable industry continues to move fiber closer to the home. That's that's been going on for the last several years, and and that that means that there are fewer devices, components, and pieces and parts between the fiber node and the customer, which improves the reliability. Um, still able to use that coax for the last mile, uh, and still able to take advantage of the incredible capacity of the fiber as as part of that network. So there's. Um, I think HFC has a long future ahead of it. I, I retired a year ago or mostly retired a year ago. And uh, and the technology that's out there today just blows my mind. I, I couldn't have imagined the stuff that, that we have that we're doing in cable today um, compared to what what it was when I started in the industry back in 1972. All right, so we're gonna we're gonna ask a question about why the cable companies won't send a clear sell a uh, a clear qualm to someone. Uh, but before we get to that, I just want to finish up this point. Ron, is one of the issues like I just sort of wonder about with YouTube TV, and I know you know that all the big cable and 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 Comcast and AT and T and all those companies, they're all trying to figure out what would happen if they did a massive over the top play rather than throwing it in the network. Um, if they just cleared all the linear channels off the system um, at that point, um, do they have much more than 10 gigabits or is that um is your number predicated on um on assuming there's some number of linear channels um the idea of providing a linear video service has been around for a long 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 time and and of course the it's going down the the, subs the subscriber numbers to the linear video services continue to decrease and the numbers for the high-speed internet service continue to go up and i think what what you'll find is that the industry will migrate more to ip-based type services over time, and it'll all come over some flavor of doxes. And there, there's actually a video service in between those two. You have the traditional linear programming. There's something called switch digital video that's kind of like IPTV in that it's only set up when there's a demand for it from a subscriber. And uh, I've seen that uh, on some head ends up uh, Rogers up in, up in Canada. A lot of cable companies still provide switch digital video. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, why don't the cable companies offer a clear qualm uh, for users? Some do, and some don't. Um, the, so it depends. The, well, it is. And, and <laughs> part of it, I think, has to do with theft of service concerns. Mm -hmm. By encrypting the, the data or the bitstream in the, in the QAM signal, that helps to minimize the, the, uh, the theft of, of service. Because theft you know, of service is a big deal. It costs cable companies a lot of money. And if well, you're in clear QAM, it doesn't prevent anyone from, uh, if you're using clear QAM, anyone can climb the pole. Uh, hook up a piece of coax that tap. Yeah. So you're inviting, uh, you know, harm to your plant as well as, you know, the potential for self-injury when someone falls off a pole um, and then you're not getting paid for the services. But if it's encrypted all the way to the set-top box, um, the opportunity to steal the service, uh, you know, by plugging into a tap somewhere just doesn't exist. Yeah, my understanding is also there may be legal ramifications uh, there, in that. Yeah, there there's absolutely be. contracts with the yeah. content providers. Yep, that's a big deal. If the content provider demands that it be encrypted, it's got to be encrypted. And it's possible that some of them may actually overreach and demand that everything be encrypted or things like that. I've just heard a number of horror stories of the the contract terms. Um, and so it wouldn't surprise me if there's a sense, um, you know, different cable companies have different reactions, but um, there may be a sense of like, why are we even inviting any sort of problems here? Um, so um, when do we think we'll be able to buy a DOCSIS 4 modem for home use? Uh, I'll, t I'll stab, I guess, in the next couple of years. The, yeah, I mean, the, the spec is pretty, the spec is done. As I mentioned earlier in our, our show here, it's the, the Cable Labs late, ver, latest version is, is uh, the fourth iteration of the DOCSIS 4.0 spec. So it takes the uh, silicon vendors time to spin up the silicon designs and then the, 
the CPE manufacturers have to get samples of the silicon and and design the the new the new CPE the cable modems that are are compatible. Um, but when that happens, I think you'll you'll see those available in the retail market, just like the three one modems are and the three L modems are. So it's part of the tech that needs to be added to the Doxus 4.0 modem, the uh, echo cancellation, or is that part of the plant? I, I think there's going to be some, it depends there too. Um, you'll probably see both flavors out there. There, there will be some flavors that include full duplex capability and, and some that don't, some that just deal with the higher splits. And typically, I think what you'll see in some of those modems is the ability to switch the diplex filters so that the modem can be told remotely to say, all right, use a 5 to 204 uh, return or a 5 to 85 return or something else, it'll be remotely switchable, which will be nice. Um, the problem is if you start throwing the echo cancellation technology and the, the full duplex capability in there and it's not used, that's that's basically wasted wasted technology mm -hmm. that takes up a lot of space. So more than likely you'll see both flavors of the of the modems. And then for a retailer, uh, the retailer would would know if the local cable company is, is doing full duplex and then the retailers would would then start stocking a full duplex capable a box that could be sold at retail. I've I've assumed that it's a motivation issue, which is if you're the leading product on the market for most people, <laughs> um, you know, like uh, why would you rush to do Doxis for in 2021 when you know you could wait till 2023? And it, it seems like Wall Street analysts um, are kind of assuming that this is something that will take a long time to implement. In part because there's just like why would you rush capital into this work? I so yeah, go ahead, Glenn. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, using the local example here in Fort Collins, we have municipal fiber now, and the municipal fiber is up to a take rate of 31%. Um, so those are customers that Comcast no longer has and are very highly unlikely to switch back to Comcast um, without, you know, giving away too many numbers. You know, that, that's $500,000 a month that Comcast is uh, no longer has as revenue because of the municipal fiber. So I think it's quite possible that Comcast will take a look at Longmont, Loveland, and Fort Collins and decide this is where we need to deploy Doxis 4.0 first. Well, in in fact, possibly more like Knoxville or um, places that haven't even started building yet. Mm -hmm. um, because I think that's that's one of the things we saw. Cox put Doxis 3 or 3.1 in Lafayette first, which was a really odd decision for Cox. Uh, Lafayette's not a premier market, but they were very worried about the municipal fiber network and they wanted to have the premier technology there. So I do think there's a lesson that cities want to get the attention and get Doxis 4. Um, there, was a, there was a joke among some consultants that if a city really wanted to get a cable upgrade, they should just put together a, a feasibility study for broadband uh, even if they didn't intend to build it <laughs> we, we saw that with comcast gigabit tier pricing before they lowered it to 70 dollars a month for everyone across the country um they definitely came in here and and undercut some of their pricing in the rest of the united states christopher before you mentioned the uh the wall street piece of that and mm -hmm. the cable industry back in the oh, late 80s into the 90s spent something like 95 billion dollars up through the end of the 90s upgrading their networks from the old-fashioned old coax networks to uh hfc you know fiber fiber uh, enhanced hfc architectures and after that wall street was really reluctant to uh um, go back and invest more money in, in the cable networks well now the the uh, i think wall street is is probably going to be a bit more free with the funds if you will because they realize that look the cable industry now has the ability to deploy technology based on something like Doxus 4.0 and, and and do so in a way that is competitive with fiber to the home where it makes sense, um, where it might be fiber to the home um, where it makes sense. 
and I think they're willing to invest in that because it, particularly with the pandemic in the last year and a half to two years, I think everybody sees the importance of, of at the very least having reliable high-speed internet service at home. And whether that's a gigabit class service or something else, I, I think that, all right, that's that stuff's pretty real and pretty important. So I think you're going to see more investment in, in, um, in upgrades and rebuilds um, sooner rather than later. Mm-hmm. Travis, last words, last question. No, very, very interesting conversation. Really appreciate you guys coming on. Topic I was not very well aware of. You know, I think the, uh, you know, to your point, Chris, I think demand will warrant upgrades where necessary. And in areas where there is no demand or very little of it, I think you'll see Doxus 3.1 live live long for many, many years to come. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that that we do see. I mean, just to talk about market share for a second, um, from what Glenn had said, um, there's an assumption that when uh, when AT&T or Verizon Fios are competing with their fiber product against a cable network, that they're going to top out at 40%. Um, we don't see that with municipal or cooperative systems. Um, municipal and cooperative systems often, um, they may they may hit 35, 40% in the years three, four, or five, but usually they, they just push right through that and they don't top out in the way that the big companies do. And I'll be curious to see whether Metronet, Ting, Google Fiber, if they top out at 40% or if they continue to eat away at that market share, because I feel like that's going to be a big question for cable, whether they can live with sharing the market with another competitor uh, or if they are going to freak out at the thought that they may actually lose much more market share than they're used to with competition head to head with uh, Verizon Fios or something like that. And I'll just say the other thing. I just saw. I just saw something came across my desk. Uh, one analyst suggesting. I don't think this was like one that is um, as. Uh, let's just say um, um, as widely read, claiming that we may have 180 million fixed wireless customers in uh, some number of years, and uh, I, I do find that a little bit hard to believe. <laughs> are, are you saying where there's an HFC network or a fiber network running? Uh, well, I mean, 180 million. Um, first of all, like. Um, there's what there's like 120 million American households. Like, I mean, I don't know, like 130 million American households. Like, well, I don't know how you get 180 million. <laughs> if you've got a proper DOCSIS network or a fiber network available to you, the last thing you're going to choose is an LTE network for to serve your in-home. Not network. an LTE network, but but potentially, uh, you know, one of these um, uh, point-to-point or something like that. I don't know. I mean, no, Starry, I'll, yeah. I'll bet you chicken wings on that. <laughs> you come yeah. up with the terms we'll debate it in the next yeah, show yeah i'm telling you don't worry about it till 14g that's the thing so <laughs> yeah. um ron uh real pleasure uh wonderful to meet you thank you for so much for for giving us some of your time today oh this has been a lot of fun thanks for having me and glenn it's uh wonderful to see you thanks for for coming on thanks for suggesting ron yeah no problem good to see you guys again too yeah, for sure. And Travis, um, I don't know what I'm doing for Thanksgiving, but uh, you know, Thanksgiving are, are wings you, could be a new tradition. Over? I mean, what are you, yeah. <laughs> I seem to be feeding Chris a lot now. I'm worried about. Uh, you know, I'm telling you, I got to pack on the weight before I have to start yeah. buying the meals. Yeah, yeah. Is your wife not feeding you over there? What's going on? So, yeah. Well done. I'll go to chow today, by the way, Chris. Well done. Yeah. Um. You know, I'm, I'm. I'm. You bought my dinner too. I mean, you bought me two meals today. I appreciate that. You no, know, actually, technically, I bought you fogo twice in the last two weeks. So. Huh? Hmm. What? Didn't what I buy you after Nanog? Didn't we go to? We didn't go to Fogo. No, you didn't invite me to that. You went out with your friends. Well, I <laughs> you know what? I, t- yeah. 
too much uh, picanha today. So next week, next week we have um, uh, Doug and Kim will be back. Uh, we're going to talk about a lot of the sort of like uh, headlines stuff that's happening. Talk about the infrastructure bill. Uh, maybe talk a little bit about Emma's report on transparency. Um, you know, there's a there's a bunch of topics. We're just going to have a fun show that hops all around. Uh, we have a, a bunch of good ideas for um, the the shows after Thanksgiving. Um, uh, there's one I really want to do, um, which is a history of LTE. Uh, I feel like it's another one. Travis will just sit there and be like, "Oh, wow, really cool!" Like this is a history class for Travis. Um, but uh, and, and can we do Doxus uh, another session and keep going with this? This was fabulous. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Just I, I love these nerdy nerdy talks. These are so cool. So. Yeah, I think that would be great. I want to know what's on the other side of Ron's office on on the top shelf. <laughs> He's got two of something that I'm curious what they are. So, excellent. Well, we'll have Ron back on, and maybe we'll just have a, a start off with a tour of the office. Um, we are uh, we're back next week. We're off for a week, and then we'll probably be back again uh, for a few shows before we take off for um, a little winter break. Uh, thank you so much uh, for tuning in for asking great questions in the chat. I um, I'm always open to to ask them whenever there's things I can decipher with my brain split in half. Um, this has been a really fun topic, and um, that is another episode of Connect This. Mm-hmm.